You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Hi, and welcome to episode 93.2 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. That point two, of course, means there's only two of us today, and it is me, Michael Farmer, I'm hosting, and joining me is Nathan Gilmore, who is a assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? I am doing well. I'm enjoying the semester so far. We're just a few days into it, but uh, I'm teaching good classes good students having a good time with it glad to hear it uh david grubbs is still off in j term somewhere in fact i have not heard from him in weeks <laughs> I, I, he he sent us a message last week that said he was going to be able to record for the rest of the semester once j term is over and since then he has retreated back under whatever pile of snow he he's been <laughs> under and uh i assume he's not going to come out till j term is over that that would be my guess as well. There will be one more decimal episode. Listeners will tell you about that at the end of today. Uh, but David Grubbs will be rejoining us in February on your side of things. So, if you're listening, David, hang in there. <laughs> Our subject today is pragmatism, but first we do have a little bit of listener feedback left over from... I, well, it's not left over. We just got it. And before I go on, I should give a little programming note to listeners. We are now recording on Tuesday afternoons, which means your emails to us regarding the most recent episodes will probably not be answered until two episodes later, unless you get them out right. very, very quickly. Right, right. And we're not neglecting you. That's just when we get them. <laughs> so we record about 2.30, 1.30, Eastern on Tuesday afternoons now. So if you um if you want an e- email answered quickly, you're going to have to send it very quickly. Right, right. But we did get an email from a uh, a listener I've never we have I don't think we've talked to before. His name's Michael Bobo. He he says, "Gentlemen, I have listened to many of your podcasts and respect your education. However, I'm rather befuddled how you continue to reconcile your faith with your learning. So my basic question is, what keeps you Christian?" How have you learned as educated men to exist in the church? Your thoughts would be cherished. Uh, He says, I completed my MA in humanities and do not attend church. I teach at a small community college in Southern California. I love the arts, literature, mythology, philosophy, and world religions. I am sympathetic to emergence, which places me on rather unpopular ground among you three. I have not been able to check my brain at the door and follow the evangelical party line that I've been taught since my earliest days of Sunday school. I long for a new expression of Christianity that is not as trapped in modern philosophical assumptions of certainty and universality. Best of you, and thank you for sharing yourselves. It's a All right, very so, good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and several good questions, really. Uh, first of all, I mean, as far as emergence theory goes, uh, which I consider as distinctive from the publishing phenomenon called emergent church. Emergentanity versus emergentdom? Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yes. Uh, I will say that, you know, among the three of us, I'm probably most sympathetic to that philosophical phenomenon. Uh, although I would situate it uh, in what I would call the seculum, 
Uh, so in other words, you know, I would say that there is a there is a span between creation and the eschaton uh, in which, in my view, emergence uh, makes a fair bit of sense. And by emergence, I mean, you know, uh, something like Friedrich Hegel when it comes to history, something like uh, Karl Marx when it comes to politics, something like... Um, trying to think about the other realms of development but you know Harnack. this idea yeah yeah i mean you know the idea that you know history does matter uh that history historical contingency actually changes the nature of things as well as the cosmetic details uh and i would say and michael you can agree or disagree with this probably among the three of us i'm most sympathetic to that philosophical stance yes <laughs> yes you are Although so, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm by no means, like, opposed to it, nor am I opposed to the emergent church exactly. I mean, we make lots of jokes about them on the podcast. Yeah, we do, we do. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm mainline. I'm Presbyterian USA. I can hardly take too many cracks at the emergent church. Right, right. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, the evangelical party line, I mean, part of the picture is that uh, in my case, and I, you know, I won't speak for the other two, and I won't demand that Michael say anything at this point, but I mean, uh, Emmanuel College, although its student body tends to be conservative evangelical, uh, although the administration also tends to be conservative evangelical, they're also great supporters of inquiry. Uh, so it's one of those places, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't pretend that I'm anything but supremely fortunate in this respect uh, that encourages us as faculty to lead students in rigorous intellectual inquiry. Uh, so, I mean, that doesn't mean that I always land uh, in the sort of post-Hegelian progressive camp, because I don't. Uh, but I do think that, you know, for instance, uh, I could teach a broad, broad range of texts uh, and our administration would not only permit it with a scowl, but would actively and happily encourage me to lead students through it. So, you know, the, the brief answer to your question, Michael, uh, Michael, the person emailing, not Michael Farmer, uh, is that I can be a Christian and a learned person because I'm at a place that actively encourages me to be just that, uh, Michael, you can answer that however you want, or you can move on to today's topic. I'll leave that to you. I, I would say that I am, at, at the very least, not discouraged, not criticized among the administration and other faculty at Crown for doing what you just described. Mm -hmm. but, but, right, I uh, I don't really follow the evangelical party line that much either, because I am, I, I suppose I am broadly evangelical, but I am I am on the mainline side of evangelical or the evangelical side of the mainline, however you prefer to think of it. <laughs> right, and right. I, um, I, I kind of wish we'd waited to do this question until Grubbs was on, because Grubbs is the most conservative among us. And, oh, absolutely, um, he, yeah. He, uh, I would be interested in hearing what he has to say. So, David, if you're listening, write a blog post or something and let, uh, right. let us know what you think. I would say that all three of us, I, I don't want to speak for you, Nathan, but I do feel fine speaking for David on this matter. All three of us, I think, would be interested in finding a Christianity that's not trapped in modern philosophical assumptions of certainty and universality. 
Yeah, I mean, I I would be curious, and uh, Michael, email Michael if you if you'd be willing to write back to us and say a little bit what you mean by universality, uh, because I think that you know the nature of Christian confession is that it makes universal claims, right? I mean, the beginning of the creed, I believe in one God, the Father, Maker of heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that at its core, it makes universal claims. I don't know if that's what Michael, the emailer, is after, though. Yeah, I don't either. So I just see that um, I, just see, I just see that big word modernist, and I think, well, David Grubbs would never call himself a modernist. No, no, and and honestly, you know, the what what's curious is, and uh, Michael Bobo, I'm I'm sure you're aware of homebrewed Christianity. If not, you might want to check them out. I think you'd enjoy them. Uh, one of the things that I spar with Bo Sanders about most frequently on their blog uh, is the fact that, you know, he accuses me of being stuck in the 13th century, and he says, you know, the future of Christianity is not to be found in Europe's past. And, you know, what I always come back at him with is, then why are you borrowing your ideas of historical progression from 19th century Germans? <laughs> So we we go back and forth on that and spar a fair bit. So if you want to go over to that site, homebrewchristianity.com, you can often see Bo Sanders and myself going back and forth on just these questions. But certainty in particular is not something I'm terribly interested in. Oh, sure, sure. I, I would say assurance and trust are certainly there, but as far as an ep- epistemic mode of power is how I would frame it, is not something that is native to the Christian tradition. I mean, it's definitely something, you know, uh, the understanding of things unseen. Or did I reverse Hebrews 11 one there? I think that you reverse it. I reverse, I always reverse that verse. Golly. (laughs) Oh, well. Anyway, Michael, I, I I would say we're probably... Given, I mean, I don't know anything about you other than what you just said, but but given what you said, it sounds like we may be more on the same page than we initially appear. Oh, I, I certainly think so. I certainly think so. I'm certainly to the the theological left of most of my most of the people at my college, which I told them when I interviewed. Mm. So <laughs> I don't feel too bad saying it here. Yeah, and I'm I'm in that weird position where on certain intellectual questions, I am the stodgy traditionalist and then on others i am the radical lefty so you just hate being put in any box whatsoever no i just live in the perpetual fear that someone might agree with me (laughs) well our topic for today is the um the uh, philosophy of pragmatism or as people in minnesota say it pragmatism (laughs) so if i say it pragmatism it's because i've lived here a year and a half now wow um the first person I know of to call his philosophy pragmatism is the American philosopher and logician C.S. Peirce. And I like C.S. Peirce because there's uh, his name is spelled so ridiculously. <laughs> so if you've ever wondered, it's not Pierce, it's Peirce. Um, but his mm-hmm. thought looks considerably differ- different from what later gets called pragmatism. Nathan, what did Peirce think about reality and how does he prefigure both pragmatism and what we might now call analytic philosophy. Well, Peirce is most interested in examining what our philosophical sentences actually mean. 
Uh, so in one way, he really is the father of pragmatism, although later on he got irked and stopped using that term to describe his own project, uh, and someone who goes beyond pragmatism, like Michael said, into more of a logical positivist move. So let me tease out both of those strands. Uh, on the positivist side, Peirce tended to take sentences as having value or making sense only insofar as uh, they helped us to synthesize physical phenomena. Uh, so in other words, I mean, certain things like the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation is the most famous example from his uh, essay, How to Make Our Ideas Clear. He says that uh, if you say to him that the wafer in the Catholic Mass uh, retains all of the accidents of bread, it still has the same mass, the same density, the same chemical composition, the same shape, so on and so forth, but yet its substance uh, becomes that of the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ. Uh, he says that ultimately it's not that that is a falsifiable claim, but it is just nonsense. Uh, and so, I mean, in that respect, you know, Peirce, to a great extent, prefigures uh, folks who are, you know, largely in the American and the British philosophical tradition who are interested in saying, all right, what sentences are actually valid sentences and which ones can we write off as nonsense? Now, some of our listeners, perhaps those who are more allied to analytical philosophy, I, I welcome criticism of that. I realize I've probably just caricatured the analytic project. Uh, but at the very least, from what I'm familiar with them, uh, analytic philosophy is very, very, very interested in saying what makes sense given the fact that we are existing in a world dominated by science. That's my uh, understanding. So, so what philosophical claims make sense given the research program uh, of the modern scientific university? Now, as far and, as and the... Per, well, wait, hang on, let's, let's pause there for a second, because Peirce, yeah. Peirce really does talk like a scientist. Yes, yes. And, and in um, Fixation of Belief, which is the companion essay, basically, to uh, How to Make Our Ideas Clear... He, mm -hmm. he he really posits the scientific method of classic scientific empiricism as the route to determining objective truth. Yes. So I, yes. I, don't, I don't think it can be over. He's not just a logician. He's a logician who praises science to the high heavens. And uh, that, right. that really does kind of throw him in with the analytic philosophers as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Now, on the pragmatic side, uh, Peirce also holds that uh, those nonsense beliefs, again, are ultimately uh, not false in the sense that, for instance, a medieval philosopher would say that his opponent is proposing false teaching, uh, in other words, something that will misform the soul, uh, but rather that it is just meaningless. It doesn't have any weight. It doesn't do anything. Uh, and therefore, I mean, it is uh, Peirce's move to locate the truth value of a philosophical claim in the ways that it actually affects the ways that people live in a scientific context. Uh, and for that reason, I mean, he really is the, in my mind, I mean, the great originator of pragmatism, even if later on he disavowed that term. Uh, Michael, is there anything about Peirce that you would add to all that? I'd add a couple of things. Number one, he, um, 
despite his association with the analytic philosophers, and for that matter, his dismissal of uh, transubstantiation, he seems to have maintained some sort of religious metaphysical system of his own, although I have not read enough of his writings to know exactly what that entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it can be difficult to pin down exactly what Peirce thinks at any given time, because over the course of his lifetime, he invents and dismisses three separate philosophical systems. Oh, fascinating. And, and the see, o- those, the two, o- those two essays we've mentioned are the only Peirce that I've read. And they so. belong to the same system. So ah, okay. if, if anything, Thanks. you could say that his dismissal of these systems makes him more of a pragmatist. Because he's dismissing <laughs> ones that don't work, I assume. But I don't, I don't know enough about him to, uh, to push further into that. So if if anybody who's listening to this is some sort of expert in Charles Saunders' purse, by all means, uh, by all means, let us know what we're missing. I, I should also point out he did some work with linguistics that was very uh, influential on Walker Percy. Hmm. Um, but I haven't read Percy's linguistic work, and I can barely understand Percy's. So. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I'm not going to be able to add much to that. Uh, certainly you hit most of the things I wanted to hit. All right, very good. Well, Peirce may have coined the term pragmat- uh, pragmatism, but it was William James who made it famous. Peirce is said to have been so angered by James's co-opting of his term for James's own ends that Peirce decided to call what he does pragmaticism, and he said, it's a, <laughs> it's a baby so ugly nobody will want to kidnap it, I believe. I believe is uh, is what he said. Which is a great line. He sure is, yeah. Um so what made what made Purse so angry? How does how does James's pragmatism differ from Purse's? Well why Purse got so angry, I'm gonna to leave to you, Michael, because I couldn't figure out reading James's short book, Pragmatism, which of course is based on a series of is it eight lectures, Michael? I think it's eight, yeah. Okay. Uh James's lectures on pragmatic philosophy uh, basically proceed from the idea that philosophy is true only insofar as it helps people to lead a better life. So that can take a few varieties. One possibility for that is uh, that it can actually lead someone to act differently. Uh, that's the most obvious, empirically verifiable way. But also, uh, James allows that a philosophical system could lead someone to better apprehend the relationships between sensible realities uh, and therefore, I mean, in aesthetic terms, to enjoy the world more fully. And that is a sort of second uh, use for philosophy, if you will. Uh, The third one, I'm blanking out on the third one, Michael. Can you help me? No, I can't. I can't think of it either. Okay, all right. Well, so we'll go with two. We'll say that there's two, and if I remember the third later on, because I... I had this lecture planned out in my head, but I didn't write it down. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I mean, for James, I mean, those two uses of philosophy are the only measures of whether a philosophy is a good one or a bad one. So what James says is uh, pragmatism ultimately doesn't start out with um, postulates the way that a geometric system would, uh, but instead it starts out with experience. So in other words, the thoughts that you think are usually uh, fairly disjointed, but you get along all right with them. But then you come along to a place where you can't reconcile the contradictions, so you alter the system and you have to discard part of it. Well, then you roll along with those presuppositions until 
that system becomes inadequate to the life you're living, and then you change your philosophy again. So for James, pragmatism is not so much a body of philosophical tenets uh, so much as it is an unstiffening, that's a word that he uses over and over, of philosophical tenets. It's an idea that uh, tenets are only good insofar as they work, they're only true insofar as they help one deal with reality better. Uh, so, I mean, that's what James was after. You know, I imagine if if Peirce has three separate philosophical systems, that would probably fly in the face of at least a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, Although it yeah. certainly seems to describe the way Peirce actually operates, doesn't it? Oh, does it ever? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Michael, imp- go ahead and run with that. I mean, what else about James should we say? Well, my impression is that Peirce was upset because... Again, in the fixation of belief, Peirce is very, very interested in finding this thing called objective truth, and he, he seems to do it mostly through the, the... Oh, yeah, good point, good point. ...through the scientific method. And so what James describes is essentially a version of what Peirce calls the metaphysical method, where every man believes what seems most right to him. James mm-hmm. kind of modifies this and makes it where you change it when you need to change it. But I, I my impression is Peirce... That, 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 is, that is Peirce's problem, is that James was insufficiently scientific okay that makes a good good bit of sense but that that is my impression i don't know that for sure (laughs) (laughs) um i think one of the most important things in in james is that that pragmatism is not at all a system of beliefs it it is a method for evaluating systems of belief Mm -hmm. and so um he we're going to get to this in a little while i know but he leaves he leaves the definition of pragmatism basically wide open so that mm-hmm. so that you can you can apply it to any metaphysical or material or any other system you would like to apply it to. James doesn't care what you believe; he only cares about why you believe it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and right, that's right. that's unusual, I would say, in philosophy. I've read very few other people who take that route. So it, it, I mean, it's interesting to read him because he's very non-threatening. Whatever you believe, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless you hold that. Well, and I'll I'll say that punchline for later but uh you know reading james I, I came to realize that you know the title of richard weaver's famous book ideas have consequences might have william james in its crosshairs it really might and you you you, you wonder <laughs> you wonder what james intended with this and where he saw it going because you read pragmatism and he certainly does not seem to advocate the sort of college freshman version of truth Right. Yeah, whatever works for you, man. You know, you, you believe right. this and I believe that. He certainly does not seem to have that in mind. And yet it's hard to see how that does not flow logically out of pragmatism, the book. Right, right. It's a fun book to read. If you've never read it and you're afraid of philosophy, James's Pragmatism is one of the more approachable philosophical texts. Yeah, it's brief and the prose is actually well formed. Yeah, I, I think he actually <laughs> may be a better prose stylist than Henry James. Oh no, that's interesting. Don't tell I Chris thought Boudreaux about that. I said that, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, um one of the more famous rhetorical moves in that book is he talks about the cash value of beliefs. A lot of yes. people who are against pragmatism have seized on that little phrase. Um to what extent is pragmatism a distinctively capitalist philosophy? Well, this is one of the places when when I first encountered pragmatism as a philosophy, it was actually as an undergrad, not in a philosophy course, but in a uh, secondary education, of course. I was, 
taking some courses thinking I might want to get licensed to teach high school someday. And one of the units in the uh, secondary education course was on philosophies of education. So uh, we didn't read any primary text in this unit because we had to do it very fast. Uh, but th three of the schools of thought about education that you know the professor introduced to us were the idealist school, the realist school, and then the pragmatic school. And what frustrated me, even as a snot-nosed 20-year-old, was the fact that so many in the class were so quick to grab onto pragma <laughs> pragmatism. There we go. I keep wanting to use purses. Ugly word. Um, <laughs> I guess he might have been wrong about that, huh? And, yeah, there you go. Uh, and the idea that kept getting repeated is, you know, well, in my classroom, I want to do whatever works. And... This cash value question, Michael, I mean, really leads me to one of my great difficulties with prag pragmatism. Uh, namely, there seems to be an underdeveloped sense of for the sake of. And of course, I mean, this is the signature move of Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers that I teach most often. Uh, they are always asking, uh, is this thing an end or does it exist for the sake of something further, Right. So what I always got, and I never got a good answer from anyone on this, when they said, well, I want to do whatever works. And I said, well, works to do what? You know, I mean, <laughs> do we want to... Works, that works to keep them their job. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one possibility. Another possibility is, you know, works to improve test scores. Another possibility is works to land them at colleges that will get them middle-class jobs. Works to, you know, I mean, there's a million different possible reasons there. And again, reading through James's little book, Pragmatism, I didn't find any real sense of what pragmatism exists for the sake of. You know, he kept saying, you know, whatever helps you live well, but there's no content to living well that I could d detect. I mean, Michael, am I missing something in there? I, 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 uh, think, I think you're missing an implication, which is if pragmatism is just a methodology, it should be able to be applied to any telos whatsoever. So the telos doesn't come from within the pragmatic system. You have mm -hmm. a, you, you decide on a telos using whatever method of evaluation you decide on a telos. And then, uh -huh. then pragmatism is a method for reaching it. I, I think in that case, then yes, it is a distinctively capitalist philosophy <laughs> 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 because I mean, you know, the, the central, uh, ultimate term, if you will, in capitalism, of course I'm borrowing that term from Kenneth Burke and Richard Weaver, uh, is exchange value, right? Uh, so in other words, you could exchange this vision of the good life for that one. Uh, you, you can pick this one up from this store in the mall or that one up from that store in the mall. Uh, and all of them are basically equal. You know, What marks something as good is the expediency, swiftness, and ease with which you can reach it. Uh, now, oh, philosophically, that just gives me a rash. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, I can see how it is, uh, and I, and I feel like I'm, I'm turning Nietzsche here for a second. You know, that is sort of the distinctive Anglo-American philosophy, isn't it? You know, it's, I mean, it's in the American character back to at least Franklin. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what you're striving for. Let's just get you to it as nicely as possible. And not only that, you're uninterested in anything that won't get you there. Yeah, precisely. Uh, like, so, so for Franklin, 
who I can I consider at least a pre-pragmatist if if not just go ahead and give him the name. But but for for Franklin, um virtue is only virtue in as much as it leads toward some higher end, which is being a good citizen, for example, or you know, mm-hmm. making money. Those seem right, to be right. the two things he's interested in. Right. So, I mean, on one hand, and, and this is another thing that just it was giving me problems when I was reading James, it seemed like only an, an, an utter straw man or Gottfried Leibniz, who sometimes writes like a straw man, <laughs> uh, could ever be anything other than a pragmatist, right? Because, I mean, what philosopher is not interested in some end beyond deliberation, right? I mean, for... Plato, it is deliberation for the sake of the elevation of the soul. For Aristotle, it's deliberation for the sake of the good of the polis, right? I mean, for uh, Machiavelli, it's deliberation for the sake of power, right? So they, so, they, all, mean, they all have ideal telos's, but the methodology to get there can't be idealistic. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is, I mean, I, I, again, you know, and the it might just be my own philosophical background. I mean, I want there to be content to a philosophical movement. <laughs> and, it, and you know, that seems to be what uh, James resists at every turn. You know, we're not going to have content. We're just going to have means. I mean, I, I think that's true. I think he's not at all interested in content. Yeah, which, I mean, to me, I mean, that... And I'm going to seem terribly elitist here, but that strikes me as sort of sub-philosophical. Well, <laughs> if it's not Greek or German, you're not interested, huh? I, oh, gosh, I, <laughs> I, I also like the Paris school of the 12th century. I'll add that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think this is a fair criticism. And so I think it's important later in the 20th century when. I would say serious philosophical thinkers like Richard Rorty and, and Stanley Fish, who is not exactly a philosopher, but is a literary critic, which is at least a branch, sure. p- pick it up and say something interesting that we'll get to here in a minute. Um, but for now, let's move backwards just a little bit. Uh, you've already invoked the specter of pragmatic education, so let's talk about the yes. second most famous pragmatic thinker, the educational theorist John Dewey, who is often the villain in conservative treatises on education. Yes, he is. But who, whenever <laughs> you think of him, can flat wear a suit. Uh, how does Dewey apply pragmatic thought to the world of education, and given what you know of him, does he deserve that awful reputation he has? Oh, goodness. I mean, depending on what your vision of a good American is, he may or may not. Uh, I mean, if you envision our lives as inextricably connected to each other, you could do worse than Dewey, uh, because his educational philosophy is that the school is a laboratory for the town. Uh, And so, you know, what you do in school should encourage students to take initiative, uh, to seek out their own projects, to research, uh, to learn those things that strike them as interesting. Now, later in his life, as people radicalized his project and said, we will teach nothing except what a student shows interest in, uh, Dewey backtracked and wrote some treatises about how this needs to be a guided invitation into self-actualization, right? right? So, I mean, he is he is a more complex thinker, as, as many famous thinkers are, than his 
idiot disciples make of him. But then again, if you're going to blame William James for freshman relativism, you're going to have to blame John Dewey for hippie education. Uh, yeah, I can see that, except that, I mean, when I read William James, I really can't see any content. <laughs> you know, so I mean, my criticism isn't, you know, some freshman that I taught once. It is the actual book that I just got done reading. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, w- I would still draw a distinction there, but I, I, I recognize that you just made a joke. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you know, Dewey's educational program, as you said, Michael, gets criticized among conservative circles largely because they accuse him of departing from a model where education has a definite course of instruction. So, in other words, for Dewey... Uh, what is less important is that we get long division down by the time you finish third grade. It's more important that in the course of second, third, fourth, and fifth grades, uh, you learn the basic contours of social life. So in other words, you know, can you ask and answer questions truthfully? Can you uh, understand difference without reacting with physical violence? Uh, can you basically live in community? Uh, and Dewey certainly thinks that learning content, like I said in some of his later treatises, he says this very directly. Uh, he says that learning content has to be part of that journey, but he also tends to focus on the social rather than on the memorization of discrete facts. All right. Uh, and for that reason, you know, I mean, I, I think especially of the cultural literacy movement as a strong reaction against Dewey's philosophy, this idea that education is largely for the sake of establishing this body of allusions that are useful for a variety of life tasks. That is a direct response to Dewey, although what's interesting, of course, is that it incorporates Dewey's emphasis on the social, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that famous Hirsch book, Cultural Literacy, his basic thesis is these are the things that are most useful for living in society. Well, that's Dewey, but it is an, it is a post Deweyan educational philosophy. Uh, now, you know, what makes that pragmatist? The answer is, uh, those things which are leading to, you know, a better life are the things that are most highlighted. So for Dewey, uh, who actually does seem to have a little bit more content, I think, and Michael, you're free to correct me on this if you need to, Uh, His idea of the good life is a harmonious community. Uh, So therefore, for Dewey, the good education is not the one that stacks up the highest pile of facts, but it's the one that leads its graduates to live well together. He's kind of a Platonist pragmatist. Say more about that. Well, I mean, the, the vision of the good life you're describing is not a million miles away from Socrates' depiction of the good life. And in fact, in Democracy and Education, Dewey talks about Plato's Republic at some length and praises his education system, although, of course, he doesn't like everything about it. Right, right. <laughs> he does. So, I mean, I mean it, it, it seems he's set up this ideal and then he's using pragmatic methods to get there, perhaps more pragmatic than Plato would be. But uh, the the end result is not that far off. And in fact, when social conservatives talk about Dewey, they often talk about him as this agent of the state who's going who's yeah. going to come in and brainwash their children. 
Mm -hmm. which, I mean, if you've ever read the Republic, in the Republic, the state is almost literally brainwashing the children. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, I mean, the children don't have a brain to wash in the Republic because they are raised as wards of the state. Right. And, and yeah, so, I mean, you get, you get the feeling that, that Dewey would not be too upset about that. Although he, as far as I know, never recommends anything that extreme because he's not setting no, up no. an ideal society. He's setting up a society he think could actually happen. Right. Right. And, and, and you know, largely course, has. my, my routine criticism of people who have a knee jerk, you know, that's awful. Plato is, uh, Plato, of course, is talking about the military class when he talks about those people who are raised by the state. And, you know, the same people who rail most vigorously against that are the same people who send their boys off to Marine boot camp to make men of them. So, I, you know, uh, it's one of those things where if people would consider have what sorts of bedfellows they invite in when they kick others out, I think maybe we could have more interesting conversations. If I didn't think a drone would come to my house, I'd say we should do an episode on the military. <laughs> well, it's fascinating, and I realize I'm going off on bunny trails here, but it also reminds me, I used to, uh, I haven't taught this text for a while because we've got very good American lit professors here who do it, but uh, I used to teach as part of my freshman comp class uh, Thoreau's essay on uh resistance to civil government and one of the things that offended students you know at the university of georgia uh most readily was the fact that you know he referred to uh basic training as something that takes human beings and turns them into mindless machines which is the goal of of basic training right but of course the narrative that they are more familiar with uh is that you know that's where boys go to become men so, you know, to substitute in a different metaphor, first of all, teaches them that metaphors matter, right? <laughs> uh, but then also, you know, uh, again, because of the strong culture of support the troops that was already there when I started teaching at UGA, uh, really rubbed a lot of students the wrong way. But that's a bunny trail. Take us back to pragmatism, Michael. Well, let's get to your favorite one, huh? Let's do uh, Stanley Fish. Stan the man. Fish is affiliated with a number of philosophical and critical schools, but in what sense do I call him a pragmatist, Nathan? How does he apply pragmatism to hermeneutics? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, I mean, if pragmatism is defined as someone who's willing to discard philosophical systems when they stop working for him, Fish is the poster boy. Uh, You know, I mean, he is the picture of the intellectual chameleon. Uh, he spent, you know, the late sixties and seventies as sort of this radical deconstructionist. Uh, in the eighties, he took a swerve more towards sort of a, uh, I mean, I would say almost a Rawlsian liberalism. And, you know, here in the last 10 years or so, uh, he started saying things in public, like the author's intent is all we have. So now he's just you know, trying to make people angry. Oh, sure. Sure. I, I don't doubt that for a minute. He's a great performer. Uh, you know, he's a great admirer of CS Lewis and like Lewis, when I read Stan fish, there's no predicting whether I will want to throw his book across the hall or print out a, an excerpt so that I can post it on my office door. Uh, I've done both of those things with Lewis and with fish. <laughs> uh, so I mean, you know, both of those are, you know, thinkers that really exemplify the 
the sort of willingness to fiddle with philosophical ideas we've talked about. But fish and pragmatism, a couple things here. One, um, fish is often grouped with what people call the neo-pragmatists, the original generation of pragmatists, Dewey, Peirce, and James are definitely early 20th century figures. Uh, The neo-pragmatist Richard Rorty, Stanley Fish, folks like that, uh, did most of their work uh, in post-Vietnam America. And so Fish's literary criticism uh, is largely concerned with this this great struggle of the postmodern era about what does it mean for a text to mean something. Uh, is there such a thing as politicizing a text or is a literary text inherently political already whenever you come to it? As I said, in the 70s, Fish tended to take the latter position. Uh, In his famous book, Is There a Text in This Class? uh, He argues that, yes, there are right or wrong ways to read John Milton or other literary texts, but those ways are always inescapably rooted in interpretive communities. So against the stereotype that sometimes that sometimes people paint of Stan Fish, uh, he did not say in the 70s that however the heck you want to read Milton is fine if you want to say that he is a great lover of Roman Catholicism and you know thinks that we ought to say more prayers to Mary. Uh, no, you really can't say that. By the way, Derrida never said that either. He's often also caricatured as saying, Yes, and he's also sometimes lumped in with the neo-pragmatists. You're absolutely right. But instead, what Fish says is that uh, there is always a relationship with the literary text, but it's always a relationship between a community and that literary text. So in other words, theoretically, there is a great, great flexibility of possibility when it comes to the interpretation of literature. But realistically pragmatically, if you will, uh, there are very strict limits because there are certain things that you can say that are valid within that community of interpreters of Milton. And there is a much broader range of things that if they appear on a sophomore's intro to lit paper, anyone trained in Milton studies will immediately recognize it as a fallacy, an error, so on and so forth. Where fish dip, Go ahead. It's the difference in Rorty between objectivity and solidarity. Yes, yes. That we, we... So yeah, I mean, to use those categories, Michael, I mean, what Fish advocates for, uh, he advocates a departure from the idea of the new critics that there is an objective meaning inherent in the text alone that any properly objective reader could come to and draw strictly from the text. Instead, he wants to say... Uh, that all literary reading and interpretation happens in historical contingent communities, uh, which are influenced by the text. I mean, there's no denying that Fish holds the text of Milton to be at the core of the community of Milton interpreters. But there's no getting behind that. In other words, there's no saying uh, what the community has historically affirmed is objectively what Milton meant. The only way, the only options you have are either to continue what the community is doing or to steer the community counter to itself and do a postmodern move, right? In other words, to take its own tools, utilize it to change its course radically, uh, and then, you know, end up with 
something that is still part of that historical conditioned community, uh, but is going in a very different direction. So in that respect, you know, he is definitely a pragmatist. Um, he denies that there is a transcendent standard to which one can appeal just as William James does. Uh, and he also says that, you know, what ultimately matters is what works like William James does where I would say there's a difference is that unlike James who, you know, seems to deny the importance of content or at least, you know, refuses to speak on it. Uh, fish says that the content that we speak of is inescapable even as it is historically contingent. And this is, this is relativism, but it is not relativism of the Christian college bugaboo relativism. It's not the relativism of the college freshmen. There there are right and wrong answers. It's just, you can't possibly come to anything by yourself. You're you're, you're always grounded in not just a community of interpretation, but in fact, you exist in multiple communities of interpretation. Right, right. And you know, uh, it's a move that, I mean, I definitely see some Heideggerian influence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take a stand over against the way that the community reads right now, but you're always and inescapably in relationship with that reading community. It's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I and you know, it, it's funny because on the... on William James's book, which I read for the first time in preparation for this podcast... Uh, his lack of content just bugged the snot out of me, and yet I can generally affirm what Stan Fish was writing in Is There a Text in This Class? So I guess, you know, I've, I've sort of marked myself as a uh, neo-pragmatist, but not a paleo-pragmatist. <laughs> I'm not sure there are paleo-pragmatists anymore. I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's definitely a pop culture version of it, don't you think? But is there someone who knows who would say, yeah, I think Stanley Fish and Richard Rorty are full of it, but I'm completely on board with William James. Ooh, now that's more interesting. And see, here's the thing. When I was reading William James, what I kept seeing over and over, and I hope these guys will comment on the blog and tell me why I'm wrong about this, uh, but what I heard is Trip Fuller and Bo Sanders talking about religious pluralism. Well, now you got to explain what you mean. Well, in other words, I mean, their approach, and I mean, I've, I've sparred with both of them on this question, uh, is that, you know, as far as our relationships with Muslims, Buddhists, uh, you know, Wiccans, so on and so forth, uh, we really don't have any standing to say uh, what you believe is false in the way that, you know, for instance, a, a 19th century Protestant minister would say to, you know, the chief of a tribe in New Guinea, right? Uh, but instead, uh, what they say is, you know, we are all pursuing different spiritual ends, and we need to affirm that as long as we are pursuing them and as long as they lead us to, le- to live better lives, it's all good. Oh, so the end doesn't matter. Either that or the ends we think we're pursuing are not the important ones. Well, no, what they say is, you know, to make pronouncements about the ends is ultimately arrogant epistemologically. But but isn't, as long as it helps you to live a better life, a pronouncement about the end? I would say so, yes, and that's where our sparring usually begins. I see. Because, because <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, I would agree that Christians don't have 
don't have an objective standard to point to when talking to Muslims or Hindus, because mm-hmm. uh, in, in Fish's terms, you belong to different communities of interpretation. And so yeah. the standards are different. But um, to say as long as it helps you live better lives, I mean, you can say, well, at least it helps you live better lives. But at a certain point, don't I have to believe that the end I'm pointed at is superior to other ends? I mean, that's what Rorty says. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, that is uh, David Bentley Hart's criticism of the new atheists in his little book, uh, what is it called? Atheist Delusions, uh, the Christian Revolution and its fashionable enemies, uh, is that ultimately this idea that there is this thing called religion with a lowercase r uh, to which Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and uh, worshippers of Zeus all belong to uh, is a spurious idea. It doesn't really take account of the historical realities and that ultimately what people think of as the ends of lowercase r religion are watered down versions of Christian theology. And, you know, uh, first of all, David Bentley Hart is enough of a rhetorician that he had me convinced entirely when I read his book over Christmas break. <laughs> Uh, now that I've stepped away from it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to digest it and think about it, but that makes sense to me, historically speaking. Yeah, I, I I could, I could see that. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I think that William James's spirit of pragmatism, uh, is still alive in what I would call liberal Protestant theology, uh, in a way that it's not in what I would call postmodern theology. And once again, uh, Nathan has separated the emergent church from postmodern Christianity. Yes, yes, I, which I will continue to do because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but what is truth? A mobile <laughs> army of metaphors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Um, when Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, it was popular, at least among academics, to connect him to philosophical pragmatism. You heard it yes. over and over and over again to the point where it became a cliché. I noticed people were not ringing that bell uh, so loudly last year. Um, is that because his first term in some way proved him not to be a pragmatist? Uh, and, oh, I goodness. mean, and, and more broadly speaking, to what degree is politics nothing but a game of pragmatism? Yeah, I mean, gosh. And, and here's where my, you know, ancient Greek bias comes in. Uh, but I would say that politics considered broadly the art of living well in a polis doesn't have to be pragmatist in the way that William James makes it pragmatic. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think that, for instance, when the ancients and really the medievals, too, talked about the good life of the city, uh, whether that be Augustine talking about the city of God, whether that be um, Thomas Aquinas, you know, adapting Aristotelian philosophy to Christian theology and talking about, you know, what is good within civic society, I think there's definitely content there. Now, I do think that uh, in a representative democracy, there is some pragmatic gamesmanship that goes on uh, to where politicians will, in order to convince an impossibly broad spectrum of constituents that, you know, uh, you are one of us and I am one of you uh, and I am the Eggman and all that good stuff, uh, that they will frame things in diff- in terms of different philosophical systems, maybe not systems, but certainly in different vocabularies. 
Uh, so in other words, I mean, Barack Obama, when he's talking to a state university crowd, will use a different vocabulary than when he is invited by Rick Warren to talk at Saddleback Church. Uh, or, for instance, uh, Sarah Palin will use a very different vocabulary when talking to an evangelical crowd than she will when talking on the political trail more, more generally or when doing one of her shows on Fox News. So, I mean, it's one of those things where I think that, you know, federal politics tends to become a game of pragmatism. Now, about Obama in particular, I think that the reason people branded him a pragmatist is because one of his great campaign promises, uh, and really one that he kept entirely too well in my view, but I'll get to that in a minute, is that he would attempt to... Uh, I mean, he would attempt to do political policy. I'll, do, I'll use that very generic verb uh, in a way that would satisfy people of a wide range of political backgrounds. Uh, so, I mean, to use the uh, House of Representatives metaphor, he was dedicated to nothing in his first four years more than he was dedicated to reaching across the aisle. Uh, so everything he did, he tried to frame it in terms that the Republicans were already using uh, so that, you know, he could appear as someone who was a centrist in all things. Now, of course, the rhetorical strategy that the Republicans quickly learned uh, would, was to take advantage of that and brand Obama as a far left-wing socialist and therefore uh, to render what used to be a sort of moderate right-wing position as a far-left position. Uh, and they did that for four years. I think it has done harm to American political discourse. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. I mean, you know, people who've been writing about political discourse in the last four years, I mean, that's a refrain that you hear over and over and over again. Uh, but I think that, you know, that's what the pragmatism of his first campaign really points to. I think that, frankly, the reason that people don't call him a pragmatist in sort of glowing terms now uh, is because they've discovered exactly what the fruits of it are when you are dealing with a, an opponent who sees your pragmatism as their opportunity. A, a <laughs> true pragmatist, you mean an opportunist. Well, yeah. I, I, and, and here I, I'm going to defend James. I don't think what he's talking about is the same as opportunism. Um, you know, I think that, um, opportunism is a is something more something i would affiliate more with niccolo machiavelli than with william james uh it's something to where power is ultimately what is ultimate and whatever you do to seize power is fair game so i you know that's one of those things where i'll defend william james uh but at any rate michael i mean you know the what i see as the failure of pragmatism in Obama's first four years uh, is that it really only works in the life of someone who isn't in an agonistic struggle with some sort of an, an, an opponent. Uh, if you are trying to make a rhetorical case to a public and you are willing to move your vocabulary in order to get closer to your opponent, but then your opponent seizes on that opportunity to move along with you, uh, then it ends up 
you know, turning political discourse in America, frankly, into something that, and I know I'm using the cliches of the uh, pundit class right now, but something that would have been unrecognizable even in the Reagan years, I think. I mean, am I am I taking that too far, Michael, or do you share that impression? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I share that general impression. I've been thinking about politics as a game of pragmatism for a while, though. I saw uh-huh. this uh, play last semester, Appomattox, by Christopher Hampton. Yes. And uh, half of it takes place in, in 1865, and half of it takes place in 1965. Mm-hmm. And the hero of the play, as far as I can tell, is LBJ. Oh, interesting. Because okay. LBJ has an idealist, a telos he wants to get to. He wants mm-hmm. he wants the Civil Rights Act to pass. That's what he wants. Okay. And he is willing to do dirty deals, to lie, to cheat, to do whatever he has to do to get that to pass. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, this is the triumph of pragmatism over idealism, and it works out pretty well, right? And then we saw Lincoln a, a few weeks ago, the, the Spielberg movie Lincoln, which is about the exact same thing. I mean, in, mm-hmm. have you seen that movie? No, I have not. So it's go good. ahead and ed- uh, I educate was, me. I figured it would be boring. Um, but it yeah, was, spoiler it was alert, he gets shot in the end. Yeah. <laughs> you don't actually see that part. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway. Sorry, that, that was my standard a, type. You're such a jerk. Um, my li- standard Titanic joke. L- Lincoln's trying to pass, I can't remember the number of the amendment. It's the amendment that frees the slaves. Yeah, and, the 13th. And he, yeah, 13th. And he feels, you know, obviously he feels very strongly. This is an absolute truth in his view. And yet, he, to, to get this passed, he has to do all sorts of things that good people aren't supposed to do, that that Mr. Smith never would do. Right. And, and and has he compromised himself or not? And I think if you take the pragmatic view to it, because the end is accomplished, and because the end is a good one, we can all agree the end is a good one. Mm-hmm. I, I hope we can. If, if not, yeah. I su- suggest you might be listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> um hasn't he done the right thing? And I mean, and that, that, that to me is the question. It may be the reason Christians shouldn't go into politics. It could be, although it's one of those things where, you know, for instance, I can see that sort of mentality operating in a very different register. For instance, in the book of acts where Paul is willing to invoke his Roman citizenship in order to expedite his travel to Rome to evangelize. Uh, but I would say, you know, it's a different range of acts that are available to him because of his commitments as opposed to Lincoln's commitments. Does that make any sense? Uh, can you explain it further? It doesn't, I don't quite get it what you're saying. Well, so for instance, you know, for Paul, uh, one of the things that is off the table is raising up an army of armed revolutionaries and marching on the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Uh, that's out of bounds because of his commitments uh to the kingship of christ and to the particular sort of kingdom that christ is inaugurating and also because they would be flattened but do you see that as one of the governing principles that keeps paul from doing no 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 okay all right okay because i I wanted to make sure that it's it's an idealistic commitment not a not a pragmatic commitment yeah i mean at least the way that paul presents himself rhetorically and the way that the book of acts presents him right you know i mean uh, I realize that there are biblical critics who would say that, you know, this was all uh, very much an opportunistic character called Saul of Tarsus that, you know, corrupted Christianity and yada, yada, yada. But I'm, I'm inclined to think that Paul's soul was pointed in a different direction than that 
I'll put it that way. But, uh, you know, so in other words, I mean, I, again, this is, this is going back to what I said earlier about, uh, William James's book. It's one of those things where depending on how tightly you draw the circle, even someone like St. Paul, you could view him as a pragmatist, right? But, you know, if everyone is pragmatist, then nobody is pragmatist. Do you see, I mean, do you see the difficulty that I'm running up against here, Michael? I, I do, it, yeah. it, it might just be because you're an Americanist and I'm incapable of understanding American philosophy, but... <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're right. One of the things that's happened as this show has progressed is that we have drawn that circle wider and wider and wider. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, you know, it's very hard to tell the size of the circle from the text of James. Right, that you're right, because, because he specifically, and, and this will move us into our next question nicely, he uses mm -hmm. this very famous metaphor where pragmatism is a hotel hallway that leads yeah. to all these different philosophical rooms, and you can do whatever you want in the room, but to get there, you got to go through the hallway. Um, so pragmatism, as I said earlier, is just this method, and it can service a number of metaphysical assumptions. And in fact, one of the um, one of the hotel guests in that metaphor is this man trying to disprove religion, and he's next door to a man trying to prove religion, and they're both having to walk through this pragmatic hallway. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I guess the the final question is, what would the pragmatic version of Christianity look like, and would it be a generally good thing? Oh goodness, and and this is one of those places where I. I have to admit, I mean, I, I just use a different constellation of metaphors than James does. And I'm not sure if, you know, we are anywhere near each other or whether we are worlds apart, because one minute I'll think, you know, we are actually fairly close in what we are saying. And the other minute I'm thinking, OK, we are mortal enemies in this struggle. So let me take a run at it, Michael. You can help me out because I'm, I'm still working on this one, I'll admit. Pragmatism, it seems to me, is a philosophy, like I said, without content, which makes it, at least on the face of it, diametrically opposed to what Christianity is. Christianity is a body of doctrinal content, first and foremost. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ said certain things. Jesus Christ died a certain way. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. You know, Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins, right? So in that respect, Christianity is a body of doctrine searching for a theology. You know, so in other words, I mean, if you frame it as ransom theory, if you frame it as Christus Victor theology, if you frame it as substitutionary penal atonement, if you frame it as moral example, just to give four very common quote-unquote theories of the atonement, although that construction obviously has fallen under criticism lately, you've still got four things that are recognizably Christian, on the other hand, pragmatism seems to be an unnegotiable method looking for content. So in other words, you know, the method of always remaining flexible, never settling on uh, content, that's what you have to do to become a pragmatist, but the content that you settle on is ultimately unimportant. So in that respect, Michael, I see them as diametrically opposed so I would say, you know, a pragmatic Christian probably ought to re-examine and see which one she actually is, right? But then on the other hand, I think, all right, on the other hand, 
I do think that Christian doctrine is something that you can measure by its fruits, right? You know, you will know a tree by its fruit. That's straight out of the New Testament. Uh, so in other words, although there is content to what constitutes a good human life, uh, which is, you know, Christ-shaped by and large, uh, there's also a sense that the secondary developments of that way of life and that way of confession and that way of thinking uh, are subject to something like what I would call pragmatic judgment. Uh, so in other words, you know, if you are uh, looking historically at, you know, the difference between uh, Quakers and Calvinists in early America, you know, you can look at the lives they led, and I think that that should lead you to some judgments of which doctrines were better, right? So, I mean, Michael, I, I'll, I'll admit this last question you threw me has utterly baffled me. I'm hoping that you can educate me so that I can think more clearly on it. Oh, I think, you, I think you've explained it fairly well. I mean, you've explained at least the central tension. I mean, I don't... I, I mean, in terms of exchanging one belief system for another when the one no longer fills your needs... I, I don't think that's a terrible way to think about Christianity or any other religion, which is that if something better comes along, you would hope you would pursue it, right? That you're not you're not so connect, committed to the doctrine that you would turn your back on what seems for you know more efficacious, if not more true, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and see, I, I think those are two. Again, I mean, what I see James saying. And I'm I'm trying real hard not to read modern, you know, therapeutic moralistic deism, to use the famous phrase that everyone quotes from Christian Smith. I'm trying not to read that onto James, but it's hard not to. And when I think you, I think I think that is actually a legitimate move. Okay, go ahead. Because I I think varieties of religious experience um, promotes that view a little more blatantly than pragmatism does. Okay, and see, I've not read that book, so help me out. What, I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read the whole thing. But the view of the view of religion that comes out of it seems to me to be, if it makes you a better person, it's a good religion. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I mean, in that case, I mean, what I would want to keep going back to is Richard Weaver's idea that ideas have consequences, right? Uh, is there an eternal, intelligible content to goodness? Uh, you know, the realists of the 13th century would say yes. The nominalists of the 13th and 14th centuries would say no. And Weaver says right there is the philosophical difference between, you know, sort of a modern conservative philosophy that says, you know, there is goodness and we should pursue it versus a modern, you know, for lack of a better word, will to power philosophy that says, uh, you know, whatever you can convince people of as far as what's good and what ain't, keep rolling with it. So, I mean, I, you know, it, that's why, again, you know, James just, just leaves me feeling itchy. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be yeah, more comfortable I, with a neo-pragmatist Christianity? Well, here's the thing. I think, you know, Alistair McIntyre, who's been a very strong influence on me, uh, really drinks from that well of neo-pragmatism because his central tenet, of course, is that uh, there is no ethics without a sociology. So in other words, ethics as a philosophical discipline is always a secondary reflection on the contours of actual lived life. So Aristotelian ethics 
always make the most sense in the context of a polis. Uh, Thomas Aquinas's ethics always make the most sense in the system of, you know, medieval kingdoms uh, under the check of a strong central church, uh, so on and so forth, right? So, I mean, in that respect, you know, Stan Fish's idea that there are right or wrong answers, but there's no way for us to get behind those answers to check them against superhuman reality, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, again, it's one of those things where I... I don't know why the neo-pragmatists make more sense to me than the pragmatists do, but I know that's the case. It, it, it's funny. I mean, it, 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 what, what it almost sounds like the conclusion we've come to, and Rudy would be spinning in his grave if he could hear us saying this, <laughs> is that the neo-pragmatists are in their way more conservative than the generation before them, or more aligned with conservative principles. I mean, when you've got... I would say so, yeah. Yeah, when you've got McIntyre coming out of there, I mean, you're dealing with someone... Um, to the right of Dewey, certainly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And well, Morty would just I mean, be horrified. Someone like, for instance, David Bentley Hart, the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, theologian who's still active right now, uh, actually still a relatively young guy. Um, you know, I mean, the central tenet of his books, The Beauty of the Infinite, uh, is that... Christian theology is ultimately a matter of aesthetics, right? So it's not uh, what works the best and what makes me a good person, but it is a more compelling vision of what counts as a good person. And that, to me, I mean, when you take that step beyond James, you know, to this sort of tacit agreement that we all know what a good person is, so therefore philosophy should get us there, to David Bentley Hart's assertion that the construct good person is itself rhetorical and that we need to make that rhetorical appeal. I think when you take that step beyond James, it sits better with me. It makes more sense philosophically. Uh, Does that distinction make any sense? It does. And I, I mean, I certainly admire that second generation more than I admire James and Dewey and purse. Although out of all of them, James is the most fun to read. (laughs) <laughs> oh, he's a he's a he's a heck of a good prose stylist, especially among philosophers. But but you're you're right. I think I think Christianity would do better to drink from the well of neo pragmatism than pragmatism classic. Hmm. I'll agree with that. Well, I, we've come to a conclusion anyway. Uh, listeners, please keep in mind neither Nathan nor I have studied this in any particular depth. I've read I don't know five or six seven things and taught them. So I, I have some idea what I'm talking about. Not that much. <laughs> right. And I read these things 15 years ago as an undergrad and so, reviewed them for this show. <laughs> so if you are an expert or you like pragmatism more than Nathan and I seem to, please, by all means, write in uh, our email address is the Christian humanist at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. What are we talking about next week? Uh, next week we are talking about musicals there's been a lot of chatter on the internet recently about the recent movie version of the uh stage musical les miserables which of course is based on the victor hugo novel uh we're gonna have a conversation about more generally the genre of the stage musical it's a genre we haven't hit yet and it deserves some conversation and we will be singing everything we say (laughs) You know, I'd I'd like to uh, make the promise that I won't sing because that'll probably make our listeners happy, but I can't make that promise. (laughs) I I dreamed a dream that you would not be singing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, since I've actually, you know, sung versions of lines from Les Miserables and other episodes, I 
I just can't make that promise. <laughs> oh well, all right. We'll we'll add, we'll add the orchestra in afterwards, like they did in the. There movie. you go. <laughs> to I'm sure the same terrible effect. There you go. Uh, anyway, until then, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and the absent David Grubb saying, "Let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger." In your life, search your world.